Welcome back to Yonder Lies. I'm Hannah Haberman. And I'm Jesse Bryant. Okay, Han, if there were a single image, let's say that isn't the skyline of the Tetons, that symbolizes Jackson Hole, what would you think of? Hmm, so many to choose from. Think of, think of Town Square. Think of a word that's like in every single business down there. Hmm, oh, cowboy. The cowboy. We've got the cowboy bar, cowboy coffee, cowboy everything. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, when people talk about the snow at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, they call it Cowboy Pow. And the logo there has got a cowboy on it too. If you walk around Town Square, there's no shortage of shops with cowboy hats, cowboy boots, pictures of cowboy hats, pictures of cowboy boots. Right. So, like, what's that all about? What is this obsession with cowboys here in Jackson, and for that matter, throughout this entire country? Today we're going to talk about the cowboy in two ways. First, what is the real history of cowboys in the U.S.? We're going to cut through the myth and try to ask who were the real cowboys, what was their life like, and where did they come from? And then we're going to dive headfirst into the mythologized cowboy and ask, why did this symbol become so popular in America, and what beliefs does the cowboy symbol actually stand for? We'll explore the idea of the American West cowboy. You know, the rugged individual pushing the American frontier further and further. Shootouts and outlaws and horses and the stuff of John Wayne films. But also, what does it mean to subvert that myth? And what do Western cowboys, in all of their shades of myth and non-myth and defiance or embrace of cliche, look like today? You know, When I told our friend Ben that we were making this episode, he said something that kind of stuck with me. He said, it's good you're finally making that because really, in the end, the only difference between Jackson and Vale is the cowboy. Hmm. Interesting point, Ben. I mean, one is in Colorado and one is in Wyoming, so I'm not sure I agree 100%, but we'll keep that in mind throughout this episode. So let's get started. Who were the cowboys that have become so ingrained in Jackson's symbology? Where did they come from, and what did they do, really? Okay, let's start really, really basic. In the most simple sense, a cowboy is a laborer who tends to herds of cattle from horseback. Yeah, can't argue with that. It's important, too, that those herds of cattle are destined for slaughter for their meat. Because, right, the image of the cowboy doesn't really come from the dairy cattle cultures of northern Europe, which spread across the northern swath of this country from Vermont to Minnesota. We've got a different sort of cow-human story there, and a different sort of cow-human story here in the West. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody who wakes up at six in the morning to milk their 50 cows, we we don't really call that person a cowboy. Although, like, there's still someone who deals very intimately with cows. The, the Western American cowboy is more specific. So it's not just cows that matter here. It's the way of life where cows are raised and grazed across vast expanses for the ultimate purpose of meat consumption. In other words, the image of the cowboy comes from a broader lifestyle or culture that is typically referred to as ranching. And by the way, the ranching lifestyle isn't actually originally American in the U.S. sense, but is Mexican and largely spread into the U.S. via Texas. 
Cattle ranching as an economic enterprise came to this continent from the dry regions of both Spain and Portugal, and thus has been going on since the 1500s in Spanish colonies like Mexico, long before the U.S. took notice, or for that matter, existed at all, as it does now. Yeah, and I mean, we could go back even further if we want to and say that this equestrian-based ranching culture in Spain actually originally came from the time of Islamic Moorish rule. And thus, the deep lineage of ranching, the cowboy, and equestrian herders in general, originated with Islamic Arabs in the Middle East. Ooh, quite the historical rabbit hole. Like most things that we now call American, the myth of the cowboys adapted and evolved from other cultures and communities. But I'd bet a lot of money that most, if not all people, dressing up in 10-gallon hats and going to the cowboy bar on Town Square here in Jackson really know that, you know? Or maybe even want to know that. Knowing that the identity at the core of the cowboy bar came to the U.S. from Islamic culture by way of Mexico is really interesting. But I imagine it might rub some more close-minded people the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, in in that way, the cowboy bar is kind of the cultural version of Trump's ultimate caravan nightmare. (laughs) I think it's a cool way to understand where symbols come from, but it seems like Trump and I might diverge there. Yeah, but the history is true. And the closest thing to what we might now recognize as the cowboy, that is someone whose job it is to manage large herds of cattle by horseback for eventual consumption as meat, comes from northern Mexico. For hundreds of years before the United States was even a thought, vaqueros were mostly poor indigenous laborers who tended enormous herds of cattle destined for the plates of wealthy Spanish colonial families in places like Mexico City. Right. And it's important to remember here that Mexico, until 1848, included land as far north as southwestern Wyoming. So when we say ranching culture and vaqueros existed in northern Mexico since the 1500s, We don't just mean what we now call northern Mexico, but we mean most of the land we now call the arid American West. Right. But it was really in what became the Texan borderlands between what is now the United States and what is now Mexico that the real English-speaking cowboy really began to take shape. Although Texas was annexed by the United States in 1845, this didn't mean that the local Mexican ranching culture was eradicated but rather it was appropriated into the ever-nebulous term American. And one aspect of ranching culture that was heavily appropriated was the role of the vaquero. Three years after the annexation of Texas in 1845, Mexico ceded an enormous swath of land to the U.S. in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, bringing all of California, Nevada, and Utah into U.S. hands, as well as parts of Wyoming, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. At this time, you still had many poor indigenous folks working as vaqueros in the United States. And as time passed, many of the tools invented by these poor, sometimes enslaved, indigenous folks were adapted into familiar forms. Their lazo, a rope with a slip knot, became the lasso. Their chaparajos became chaps, and their sombrero became the ten-gallon hat. Through most of the 19th century American West, the vaquero remained a low-status job performed primarily by indigenous and multiracial folks in the lower echelon of society. And once the United States acquired these lands, that reality didn't really change that much. Through the mid-19th century, the work of Bacaroos, which is the 
Anglicanized form of vaqueros, who drove beef cattle across gigantic swaths of the newly acquired Texas and the high plains of eastern Colorado, Oklahoma, and Nebraska, was still mostly done by low-class laborers. Around the middle of the 19th century, the term cowboy first emerged in the popular American lexicon, first as a derogatory term for those relegated to the monotonous routine of herding cattle for next to nothing. These misfits included folks as wide-ranging as 12-year-old, out-of-work white farmer sons to African-American fugitive slaves to women posing as men to multiracial vaqueros whose families had been laboring in this way for three centuries. All this is to say that the cowboy looked like many, many different people. Yeah, and the work of the 19th century cowboy was unimaginably tedious and soul-crushing. Oftentimes, the most gruesome work, the killing of newborn calves, for instance, was left to black cowboys. As mixed-sex herds of cattle were driven to market, cows would often have calves along the way. If kept alive, these newborn calves would slow down the drive and thus slow down the stream of profit, sometimes referred to by the wealthy ranch bosses as, quote, cash on the hoof. This meant that one common job of the cowboys on the lowest rung of the cowboy hierarchy was to shoot newborn calves right after they were born. Yikes, that's pretty disturbing. Capitalism taking precedent over the lives of calves, I guess. In addition to the work itself being immensely exhausting, the beef cattle industry in the high plains of the West had already been captured by big business by the close of the Civil War. And thus, the cowboy has always been in some ways caught up in big business, which in this case existed to serve the tastes and distinguished palates of the elite. One interesting aside, a 2017 Smithsonian article written by Katie Nojimbaden entitled The Lesser Known History of African American Cowboys outlines how many Texas ranchers left their ranches to slaves to tend to during the Civil War. This both allowed for slaves to hone the skills necessary to tend cattle, and after the Civil War, meant that being a cowboy was a job available for many now free African Americans. After the Civil War, the Gilded Age, a period defined by rapid economic growth, went into full swing, and the demand for beef in American cities skyrocketed. This meant that the role of the cowboy in the American West quickly shifted from taking care of cows for local markets to getting the largest herds of cattle to the nearest railway port to Chicago. It also meant that there was a great geographic expansion of black cowboys as livestock began to sell to broader and more northern markets. Why? In the wake of the Civil War, while a cow might have sold for a few dollars in Texas, that same cow loaded onto a train and sold in the Chicago stockyards might have gone for as much as $40 at the time, which is a 2,000% markup. Ooh, that's a big markup. And so by the late 1800s, cowboys in the American West were still poor laborers who were more often than not people of color, whether Latino, indigenous, or African-American and were low-level in the large conglomeration of businesses meant to meet the growing demands for meat in Gilded Age urban centers. Meant to meet the growing demand for meat. (laughs) That's that's quite a tongue twister. But notably, this isn't uh, the cowboy that is, you know, imagined by the sign in front of the cowboy bar here in Town Square, or by the labels on the bags of cowboy coffee. No, you're right. That's a different cowboy entirely the mythologized cowboy. And although there are aspects of the mythologized cowboy that were lived out by real cowboys, 
The myth is mostly an invention of American pop culture imagination. Support for Yonder Lies comes from Think WY, Wyoming Humanities. Wyoming Humanities supports programs, grants, and initiatives in Teton County and across Wyoming that explore history, culture, and the human experience. To learn more about the Wyoming Humanities Council, visit thinkwy.org. Again, that's thinkwy.org. So, in parallel to the real and tedious work of the 19th century cowboy in the American West, who was, again, the lowest level laborer in a culture of equestrian-based animal husbandry that originated in the Islamic cultures of the Middle East, who brought them to Spain and Portugal through colonization, who brought them to Mexico through colonization, who was then conquered by the United States, whose urban elite absorbed this Arab-Spanish-Mexican ranching culture of cows, horses, and meat into their dietary whims. In parallel to this history was the invention by those same urban elites of the myth of the cowboy. Woof, what a extensive summary of the history. <laughs> yeah, but around around the turn of the century, the rapid industrialization of the United States, which included the rapid integration of meat into diets, was also beginning to be met with skepticism and nostalgia. The skepticism of industrial urbanism took many forms in America throughout the 1800s, from the early ideal of Thoreau's transcendentalism to Thomas Cold's Hudson River School of Painting, Every technological or political step forward seemed to come with some parallel shadow step back into dreamy U.S. nostalgia. And the mythologized cowboy is no different. And let's be careful here because the cowboy myth generally presents in two different forms. In the first sense, the cowboy is wrapped up in democratic pastoral ideas that date back to the beginning of the U.S., the self-sufficient farmer vibe. The second form, as we'll see, was basically a hijacked version of the first version of the cowboy, which served as military propaganda in order to justify the genocide of Native Americans to the American public in the wake of the Civil War. But let's uh, let's let's start with the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Start first, first. So when I say cowboy, what do you think of, Jess? Uh, you know, a lonely white guy out there on the prairie, maybe drinking coffee. He's self-sufficient, isn't corrupted by industry, is like pure <laughs> or something. Definitely has a horse. <laughs> nice. Nailed it. This is the first mythologized sense of the cowboy. Did this type of person actually ever exist outside of movies and stories and images? It's not clear, but it sure did in the American mind. In fact, the symbol of the cowboy was the perfect manifestation of an older American myth, the Yeoman Farmer. And this is American History 101, but during the country's founding, there was a huge divide between the people who wanted to be really industrious and trade globally and have a centralized federal government, people like the Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton, and then there were folks like Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans, who were sort of like, we, meaning white men, should just be a bunch of self-sufficient farmers over here, and we're not going to get too caught up in all this corrupting hubbub of the urban trading life. Yikes. I'm getting some, like, serious flashbacks to U.S. history and government classes. <laughs> yeah, it's deep in the memory banks, for sure. Jefferson thought that the only way democracy could survive in this world of corruption and power was to be composed of a bunch of self-sufficient pastoral people 
who grew their own food and were grounded in agricultural values. Otherwise, Jefferson argued, people would start relying on centralized federal power to give them things. And the government would inevitably hold that power over the people, and pure democracy would be lost forever. It's also important to remember that the U.S. was very much, and still is, I would say, kind of an experiment in democracy. And that this experiment in democracy is based on a huge history and continued reality of forcible displacement and genocide of indigenous people, as well as the long, long history of slavery and racial oppression that continues to play out throughout the U.S. as we all know today. Totally. And this brings us to the question of whether this mythologized yeoman farmer in Jefferson's mind was white. And the answer is, as you might have guessed, yes. yes. I'm not sure how many people know this, but Jefferson was simultaneously an abolitionist and also a big-time racist. He thought that the only way we could create the most pure and functional pastoral democratic American society was if we rid the country of the plague of slavery. But getting rid of slavery in Jefferson's mind wasn't about giving enslaved blacks equal rights in America. For Jefferson, ending slavery meant sending slaves back to Africa. Honestly, I didn't I didn't really know that until a couple of years ago. And it's it's like a disturbing and weird thought, especially when so many slaves were born in the United States in the first place. I've got to credit Nicole Hannah Jones's New York Times podcast 1619 for raising my awareness on this one. And so as Jefferson and others talked about, wrote about, embodied and represented the yeoman farmer idea through their work and their lives, Only white men were included in this identity and this vision of democracy to begin with. We'll get back to this, but suffice to say, the imagined idea of the cowboy is very much tied to this older Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer, the ideal American, the only chance for democracy, the white man. Obviously, we're being sarcastic. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, so let's back up for... A second, how did the Yeoman farmer become the mythologized cowboy? Yeah, I guess we kind of missed that transition piece. So, <laughs> so in the mid-1800s, when the U.S. acquired, you know, all of northern Mexico from like Texas to northern California to Arizona, the U.S. also really acquired this very specific vaquero or cowboy ranching culture in a big way. And by this time, the Yeoman farmer myth was already deeply entrenched in the, you know, farm context here in this continent. And it quickly became applied to the ranch culture in an attempt to inspire white Americans to go settle the new land. And just like that, the idealized myth of the cowboy was born. Jefferson's Yeoman farmer evolved to suit the drylands newly acquired by the U.S., where ranching and cattle reigned supreme. So in this first version of the mythologized cowboy, you know, white guy who's out there on his own with his horse doing hard, honest work, that represents not only the American West, but also really deeply rooted political ideals of American individualism as well. Yeah, and it symbolizes one side of this deep division in U.S. politics that's existed from the get-go, the Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian divide the urban industrialists versus the self-sufficient rural pastoralists. Hmm. I wonder what the Hamiltonian equivalent to the yeoman farmer and cowboy symbol would be. Like, maybe the myth of the small business owner? You know, we still hear that one a lot, which is, I guess, the Hamiltonian ideal. I mean, 
look at the play Hamilton. You know the story. Guy comes from nothing, grows up on the streets, becomes a millionaire and a politician and a founding father. Yeah, th- I mean, that's not really a small business owner. <laughs> okay, okay. Fair point, but just let me run with this. That progression, as Hamilton would contend about his own story as forever immortalized in the 21st century musical by the brilliant Lin-Manuel Miranda, is the ideal American. Although, spoiler alert, he does die at the end in a shootout with Vice President Aaron Burr, which wasn't great. Whereas the cowboy is, like, out there not making money, just working hard or something? Again, in reality, actual cowboys through most of American history were actually just poor people of color doing terribly tedious work for poor compensation. Right. But at some point, the myth of the cowboy took a turn for the worse. It became weaponized by military propagandists in order to justify a genocide against Native Americans, two white settlers. This is what we'll call the second myth of the cowboy. Support for Yonder Lies comes from Wildlife Expeditions of Teton Science Schools. For over 20 years, Wildlife Expeditions has been leading educational wildlife tours in Jackson Hole, Grand Teton, and Yellowstone National Parks. To see wildlife and support education, visit wildlifeexpeditions.org. So as national anxiety grew around the closure of our imagined frontier and the logical end of Manifest Destiny, the American government turned its attention to civilizing the land. Heavy air quotes there. And what this meant in reality was dealing with what some politicians at the time called, quote, the Indian problem. This was their propaganda project, to take the nationally revered symbol of the noble cowboy and put it in conflict with Native folks in order to justify widespread eradication and relocation of indigenous tribes. Ooh, not a good look. I don't agree with their logic one bit, but I can understand where they're coming from with the symbols. If noble cowboy was the one doing the killing, then how could it have been seen as immoral? Exactly. And this is where we get the classic sort of juxtaposition of cowboys and Indians, or, as it's often phrased, cowboys versus Indians. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a popular magazine in Wyoming called Cowboys and Indians, whose tagline is, quote, the premier magazine of the West. The magazine was founded in 1992 by former tech and defense manufacturing entrepreneur Robert Hartman, which feels horribly on brand. And again, just to reiterate the history, real cowboys were just poor dudes pushing cattle to market who often didn't carry firearms by order of their ranch bosses because loud noises would cause stampedes. Yeah. So let's call the second myth of the cowboy the military myth of the cowboy. Because in this cowboys and Indian sense, these cowboys actually had essentially nothing to do with, like, real cowboys or real cows. They were just guys from the Union Army like Colonel George Custer and General Philip Sheridan, who, after winning the Civil War, the government saw it fit to apply their military brilliance to, quote, civilizing the frontier. That is, getting rid of the Indians who lived in the newly acquired territories of, say, Wyoming, essentially preparing the land for white settlement. Yeah, and to be clear, this period of violence against Native Americans definitely didn't just start after the Civil War ended. It's been going on since European settlers arrived on this land, 
and it was sustained, strategic, and intended to clear land for European colonization. It's definitely not pretty, and a lot of it has been written out of history books entirely, uh, or totally romanticized in this sort of cowboy and Indian framework. Yeah. When I was growing up in Billings, Montana, we'd often go to the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, which was less than an hour away from where I grew up. It was previously known as Custer's National Cemetery, and known to the Lakota and other Plains tribes as the Battle of Greasy Grass. A lot of people think of it as Custer's Last Stand. It memorializes a battle that took place in July of 1876 along the banks of the Little Bighorn River. Lakota, Dakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho forces absolutely overwhelmed the U.S. troops, resulting in the death of Colonel Custer and 267 other U.S. soldiers. The victory was resounding, but the repercussions against Native folks were significant. U.S. Congress increased cavalry sizes and added another 2,500 troops to the U.S. Army for the cause of emptying land for white settlement. Not only that, but Congress also added what became known as the Sell or Starve Rider to the Indian Appropriations Act of 1876, cutting off all rations to the Sioux until they stopped fighting. The U.S. government also seized the Black Hills, land sacred to the Sioux. And a year later, the Agreement of 1877 officially took away Sioux land and established reservations. It's a really well-studied and well-memorialized event whose narrative has changed a lot over time. But I remember as a kid not really knowing how to feel every time we went there. Was I supposed to feel sad? Was I supposed to be proud of the white soldiers who valiantly died? Was I supposed to side with indigenous folks? I just didn't really know how to understand the event. Yeah, and then there's also the businesses who profited enormously from the Civil War, who served to profit further from the continued violence. Weapons developers like Samuel Colt, to textile manufacturers like Brooks Brothers, who made outfits for soldiers, to bankers like J.P. Morgan. Yeah, we can't forget about the military-industrial complex. Yeah, when I, when I was in grad school in New Haven, Connecticut for a while, in town, you can't really help but miss the old Winchester repeating arms factory. And at the Buffalo Bill Cody Center for the American West in Cody, Wyoming, the amount of Winchester advertisements from just after the Civil War that involved some cowboy-looking guy is just mind-blowing. I mean, in some ads, our military cowboy was chasing cattle, in others, chasing buffalo, and in others, Indians. And at the time, especially for men who are too young to fight in the Civil War, the militarized cowboy was an image of what it meant to be a man. It was the ultimate recruiting tool. And to those weapons manufacturers like Winchester, who needed young men to literally buy into an imagined masculinity for their business to stay alive, the militarized cowboy was nothing short of perfect. And there's probably nobody more responsible for the creation and recreation of this militarized cowboy than Buffalo Bill Cody, who Cody Wyoming is named for. In 1883, Cody started his traveling Buffalo Bill's Wild West, which was a circus-like traveling production that dramatized events from the post-Civil War Cowboys and Indians American frontier, like Custer's Last Stand. And oh, (laughs) did the world eat this up. (laughs) (laughs) From 1887 to 1892, Cody toured Europe performing his militarized cowboy show, and in 1893 brought down the house at the Chicago World's Fair which successfully injected the Cowboys and Indians drama directly into the veins of American pop culture. 
And because of Cody's success in Europe, this sort of militarized cowboy drama became really the first typically American storyline that the rest of the Western world enjoyed. In some ways, it became the lens through which the rest of the world understood the American story, and even Americans themselves. Yeah, and this sort of dramatic reenactment is is still going on here today in Jackson. Indeed. The Jackson Hole shootout takes place in the summer in Jackson from Monday through Saturday at 6 p.m. on the town square. The Jackson Hole Wyoming website hopefully tells us that there's no shootings on Sunday, and it's free to the public. No reservations necessary. It's pretty weird in the summer to be biking through Jackson and hear gunshots. Like, what are we commemorating here? Yeah, the military cowboy is like the perfect propaganda star. But I'd argue that today, here in a place like Jackson, when someone dresses up like a cowboy and goes to the cowboy bar to drink some whiskey on a saddle seat, bar stool, (laughs) they're probably not thinking of this violent second sense of the cowboy. My guess is most people here in Jackson buy into the symbol of the cowboy represented in the first version of the myth, the sort of Jeffersonian, self-reliant individualist. And in some ways, the second militarized myth of the cowboy made room again through the eradication of native peoples for the sort of pastoral cowboy myth, the first one, to be lived out by even more Americans as they bought into and then lived out the frontier myth in places like Wyoming. But I mean, when we talked to Dr. Justin Farrell about his recently published book, Billionaire Wilderness, back in episode six, he said that many of the wealthy folks here in Jackson do come here specifically to sort of get out of the global urban industrial rat race. Right. I mean, we've said this before, but again, myths are just sort of a way that people make meaning of their life. And so for people who have made sense of their life only using that sort of Hamiltonian urban industrial business mythology, and then that Hamiltonian lifestyle starts to destroy them, you know, physically and mentally, the like pastoral Jeffersonian way here in Jackson represented by the cowboy can seem appealing, even necessary, like a mythological medicine. It's almost like here, at least the myth of the cowboy and the myth of, you know, something like wilderness go hand in hand in this medicinal way. Hmm. That's a a cool way of thinking about it. Uh, But before we finish up, I do want to get to this because the sort of convergence and conflict between the mythologized cowboy and the real history of cowboys, specifically along racial lines, has bubbled up in a number of times over the past couple years. Yeah, the debate over like who can be a cowboy has presented itself in a number of interesting ways and controversies in the world of country music. I mean, one specific instance I can think of is when Billboard removed Lil Nas X's Old Town Road from the country charts. And then, of course, Billy Ray Cyrus came to his side in the incredibly popular remix. There's a really good episode of a podcast called Switched on Pop. Um, I think the title is Country at a Crossroads where the two hosts, a music theorist and a musicologist, listen to a bunch of songs on the top country charts to figure out, like in a musical sense, what qualifies as country music these days. And musically, they find that basically anything goes. Country is now, you know, rock, it's EDM. I mean, literally today, electronic music legend Diplo is on the country Hot 100 charts. But although anything goes musically in the country world, you basically have to be white. And not just to stick only to the music world, because there's so much between 1877 and 2019, but another recent example of 
this racial backlash in the music industry was after Beyonce performed her hit country song, Daddy Lessons, with the Dixie Chicks at the Country Music Awards. A lot of people reacted by saying things like, quote, Beyonce is on a mission to take country music away from us hardworking white people. And it's funny because Beyonce is from Texas, where in the U.S. mythology of the cowboy is where the cowboy really got started. And like, I know country music isn't exactly the same thing as the cowboy myth, but it is a genre of music built up around some of the same mythologized ideas. Sure. But even yesterday, you know, as protests continue to sweep the country in response to the murder of George Floyd, the New York Times published an article entitled Evoking History, Black Cowboys Take to the Streets. And the article points out that seeing black people on horses is often surprising to most Americans. Right. And the fact that for most Americans, and I'll include myself here, the reaction to a black person on a horse isn't, oh, a black person on a horse, how historically accurate, but whoa, a black person on a horse, how historically surprising. Honestly, it's indicative of how real the racialized aspect of the myth of the cowboy actually is in our country. And there are a lot of people who have been and are working to subvert this myth and reclaim the real history. From the Atlanta Black Rodeo Associate, or the Nonstop Riding Club in Houston's Third Ward, or Brianna Noble, at UrbanCowgirl510 on Instagram, who has taken her horse Dapper Dan to a bunch of Black Lives Matter protests in Oakland, California. They're submerging the myth of the cowboy, but also reclaiming the real history of the cowboy in this country. The cowboys who were more often than not poor people of color working for almost nothing. In another sense, they're building a whole new myth altogether. Or maybe even a whole new reality. But we've covered a lot here. I want to talk for just a second about what does this mean for us here in Jackson? Like, the purpose of our podcast is to understand the myths of Jackson. So where does this leave us? Yeah, on a personal level, it makes me think about how much the myth of the cowboy also has sort of creeped into other worlds in Jackson. Like, say, the mountaineer. You know, a guy out there by himself living off next to nothing, wrangling mountains or whatever. (laughs) I mean, it makes me think about how deeply gendered the myth of the cowboy is as well. Like, what about cowgirls? Or cow people, for that matter? (laughs) Either way, there's so much to say about the myth from a gendered lens, too. Looks like we might have to do a follow-up episode. Hey, uh, you want to go to the cowboy bar for dinner and keep talking about this? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Technical support comes from Jackson's community radio station, KHOL 89.1, and the Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative. A big thanks to the Jackson Hole Historical Society for providing access to hours of archival audio. Special shout out to Doug Haberman for our theme music and Becca Holt-Houston for our beautiful cover. If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And if you'd like to support the show with a small monthly donation, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash yonderlies. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash yonderlies. 